HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Lee Campbell. We'll talk to Lee about the wines of Virginia, natural wine, hospitality, and more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Straight out of Poughkeepsie, Lee Campbell <laughs> did it all from restaurants to retail to wine importing, sommelier, wine festivals, and wine director. <laughs> Lee is also kind of an OG in natural wine. She Not kind works. of, Sam. Not kind Let of. Let me finish Definite. the intro. Definite. <laughs> Sit on your hand. Let <laughs> me finish it. She now works as a consultant and recently helped open Victoria Blamy's new restaurant, Maine, in New York City. So the question is, what's left to do? How about putting Virginia wines and early mountain vineyards on the map? Welcome to the Grape Nation, Lee. We are talking Hi, to Lee Sam. remotely via Hello, Zencaster. Sam. Where are you now, Lee? Um, I'm straight out of Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn today. Okay. So yeah. I just want to tell people we were going to record the show at the Heritage Radio Studios because you're in Brooklyn and our studios are in Brooklyn. Yeah. But we closed them down for COVID for February and hopefully we'll be back in there um, in March. So I'm sorry we couldn't do that. Yeah. And yes, it's, it's real local for me. It's great. Yeah. And it would have been <laughs> nice to sit across from each other. And you are not kind of an OG in natural wine. You are an OG, but we'll get to that in a little bit. There you are. All right, so I want to um, I want to give my listeners a little frame and reference of who you are. So during your journey in life, food and wine, um, you were fortunate enough to work with some great people in the industry, and I'm going to throw some names out: Nora Poulian, David Lilly, Joe Dressner, and Andrew Tarlow, um, mm -hmm. to name a few. Um, I actually want to add one uh, very important: Terry Thies. Okay. Um, so yeah. let's mm -hmm. 
put Terry in where you think he belongs, but tell me about these people. Mm-hmm. Tell me about their influence on you and how they change your thinking. And I think as you kind of walk through this, you know, we'll get a sense of who you are and where you were type thing. Sure. And I was going to ask you, did we miss anyone? And before I could ask you, you put Terry in. So let's talk about that. Sure. Um, well, you know, I put Terry in because, well, maybe I should just start with Nora. You know, she was um, Nora Puyon and her um, partner, Steve D'Amato and her brother-in-law, Thomas D'Amato, um, they started a small empire of restaurants in Washington, D.C. I don't even know how many years ago now, maybe 35 years ago. And um, the flagship was called Restaurant Nora. I was working in D.C. Um, after college, uh, was thinking that I was going to pursue a career in um, the political world. I um, had attended the University of Virginia, studied American government, had done a couple of congressional internships, and really was very set upon a life on Capitol Hill. Now it seems crazy to me. But um, <laughs> but but at the time, super idealistic, um, wanted to make change, loved constitutional law, and wanted to go to law school and end up on the Hill, you know, definitely could see myself as a lobbyist. I, again, I, I, now it's like crazy to me to think about it. You're but, better off um, being in a lobby. Yeah, probably. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, cause the things I would lobby for, I, I wouldn't, I don't even know if I could make a living lobbying for them. So um, anyway, so I was living in Washington DC, sort of cooling my heels after college, uh, working for some nonprofits and, you know, just trying to get a lay of the land, hoping that eventually that I would get into a law school like Georgetown or George Washington, something local, something tapped into the political scene. And um, I had a restaurant meal that just changed my life. I think it was for my birthday. My boyfriend took me, my mentor at the time had recommended I go to this restaurant. She said, you're going to love it. And I went to it and it just, it, it transformed the way I thought about restaurants. It was a beautiful restaurant and the food was gorgeous. But what I always remember was when you flipped over the menu on the other side, it had a list of all of their suppliers, purveyors, and farmers and told the story of that. And I just had never, even though I grew up in the Hudson Valley and had grown up around a number of farms and my grandfather was a farmer in Jamaica, you know, I'm still a kid of the 70s and the 80s. There's a real disconnect during that period of time with food sourcing. You know, that was sort of the evolution of processed food and packaged food and boxed food. And there was a conversation that just was not being had about how we eat in this country. I think it continues in a lot of ways, but we've gotten better in also some other ways. So, um, so it, 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 it was a light bulb. It was a huge, you know, bright light in my face that I, that I had never seen before. And what I started to understand was this sort of side obsession that I had always had with cooking and food and my palate and just like experiencing sort of pleasure through tasting amazing things, which I'd had since I was basically five years old. Um, I could link it professionally to something that maybe had a larger point of view, um, a larger kind of political ethos that had a purposeful ethos. And I had never believed or understood that I could do that. I thought if you, you know, worked in sort of hospitality or food or restaurants, first of all, that was sort of like kind of a menial position. And it was just about food. I didn't know that there could be like a grander purpose and you could be part of a larger movement. And that's what Nora and um, her partners taught me. But she was she was one of few and ahead of her time. 
Uh, completely ahead of her time. I mean, yeah. she, I, you know, to be honest, she wasn't ahead of Alice Waters, but no, she was on, a, but she was on Alice, Alice Waters was on heels. the West Coast. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's what it was. Alice was right. on the West Coast. Alice was a little, you know, was different. And uh, Nora also being Austrian born was very different and her, you know, very unique and singular in her sensibility. Um, and then joining up with these two brothers from Jersey. Like it was just, it was sort of like my perfect space, right? It was like, the well, continent pulled, meets it, it Jersey. It pulled you into the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I, I have to tell you that these were just some of the smartest people I've ever met, still to this day. And I am very attracted to brilliant people. I see myself more as always wanting to be a student. And so I'm always sort of looking for mentors and looking for teachers and wanting to be in that space where you just learn all day long. And uh, working in this company, working for that restaurant was certainly that experience. All right, um, so mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna progress on. Yeah, um, we're gonna move to David Lilly, but I want to put like a little wedge in between. Yeah. in a good way. You had many jobs. If people looked at your resume, they so would many go, jobs. They would go, "What's wrong with her?" And yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing to do with that. It's a bit of the nature of the industry. It's you know how you approach things, but you did a lot of things in you know a shorter period of time than most. But yeah. that's why I said, you know, here's a handful of people that I think, you know, along the way, you know, were, were important. You did retail, you did import, but you did wind up at a very important um, space. And that was Chamber Street Wines with David Lilly. Right. Um, just get me there quickly, you know, in between what were you doing. You don't have to go into too um, much detail, came, but tell came, me about. Yeah. I worked for Nora for about a year and then I came um, back to New York. You know, I didn't grow up. I grew up sort of partially in the city because my my mom had, my parents had separated and my mom was living in Harlem. And so I was always up and down Metro North between Poughkeepsie and Harlem. Um, that was sort of my adolescence, but I had come back to New York city, um, started to look around the restaurant food world for jobs and, um, ended up working for a bunch of restaurants, a bunch of high profile chefs, um, had some really great great experiences, but probably more learning experiences about who I wanted to be around and what I wanted to be doing. And, um, at some point, um, after bouncing in and out of restaurants and several sort of cycles, ended up working for Chamber Street Wines because a friend of mine was already working there, a guy named Noel Sure. He and I had already worked together at a distributorship called um, Vineyard Expressions with a guy named another brilliant guy named Mark Whitmore and another brilliant guy named Charlie Woods. And um, he was Noel was working at Chambers and he said, well, come by, you know, I think we have a spot for you. So I went in, I met these guys. They were great. They were about a year in, I think this was around 2002 or so. Um, they had opened a year before, right after 9-11 or right during 9-11. It was really hectic. And I came in about a year later. And um, likewise, another brilliant <laughs> group of people to learn around and to find my voice around. And um yeah, to sort of but describe teach- describe Chamber Street. You know, sort of had a certain mission or vision compared to other um, wine shops. Just like yeah. in a nutshell, I mean, describe I, I think what they were to, doing to give voice to small artisan producers in Europe, right. but probably very um, enthusiastically to Loire Valley producers and um, David Lilly working as, as almost a retail tandem um, counterpart to Joe Dresner, who was sort of 
theoretically doing the sourcing, but these guys did it together a lot in the early days. I mean, Joe right. and and David hit the hit all the trails together and uh, found a lot of those wines together. And and then Joe and Denise, his wife, um, eventually Kevin McKenna as well, a third partner, um, became then the import specialist, and David became the retail specialist. But both sides creating like real tastemakers for the industry and really always pushing back against the idea of elitism in wine. And that's, um, that's where I sort of got drawn in. I mean, I had many opportunities and, and many different experiences coming into wine slowly in different ways, but it wasn't really until I met Joe and David and Jamie, um, David's partner, that David's retail um, business partner, is that um, I really understood that there was a place for me in this world and it didn't have to be a world that was grounded in elitism, that it could be, that it was inclusive and I felt part of that inclusivity. So, and I mean, I guess we'll do this. And and as a black woman, you know, that was very important. <laughs> <laughs> hey, okay. everybody, I'm African American and I'm a woman. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. I'm jumping around because I want you to yeah. get to Andrew. But while you're on that thought of elitism and all that, you know, you just said it. But early in your career, you said, you know, hospitality, the industry reeked of elitism and was filled with people that don't look like you. Ironically, and you just kind of took us through it, the people that influenced you, you know, were white and predominantly male. They're all white uh, dudes. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to freeze for a second because I want you to talk about Finnish Dresner, maybe Tarlow. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, have you seen progress in the industry towards diversity and equity? Oh, yeah. I mean, through the years, I mean, you're talking about 2002, which is a long time ago, but doesn't seem like that long ago. Um, and we're in 2022. I yeah, mean, I mean, uh, I've, seen, I, I've seen enormous um, transformation, and especially just in the last pro probably two or three years. You know, we, we've, as a society, we've gone through a lot of changes in the last couple of years. And the industry, the wine industry, I think, has held itself to task. You know, it's always been very important for me to, I always felt so well mentored by uh, such all these amazing people. And I've always tried very hard to also pass it along, pay it forward and be a mentor to other people who approach me and um, certainly people of color, but really anybody who approaches me, I've tried to support and mentor and encourage. So um, I, I believe there's been great transformation, but what I think that the industry has a little bit um, confused right now is while we want to see black faces and black voices and and uh, brown faces and brown voices and and non-binary voices and people who are you know underrepresented and you know we want everybody at the table um, because it is a table it's this grand table under this amazing right. tent and we're having all this fun but I think sometimes you have to ask people and and consider cultures and consider historical backgrounds before you start throwing opportunities so you know some of the things that I've been talking about sort of vocally lately is that, um, you know, <laughs> when I got into this industry, my grandmother was not pleased. You know, my, my, my grandparents, my parents, they worked very hard to give me opportunities, one of which included going to college, studying abroad, traveling, all sorts of things, right? So when I come to them and I say, oh, I'm going to go work in a restaurant now, <laughs> they say, you know what, that's pretty shitty. And Four so, years of college down the yeah. toilet. You know, so um, 
there has been a lifetime of me sort of convincing my father that, you know, maybe this wasn't such a bad way to go. And I, my grandmother died not understanding what the choices that I made, starting to maybe be a little more curious about it, but still thinking I had sort of like missed the boat. And likewise, there are a lot of uh, people of color, color who um, come from, you know, backgrounds where the focus is education and the focus is achievement and the focus is um, right. progression. And these are not necessarily people that want to work in production in a winery. You know, do you really right. want to take your four year degree and go wash a winery out? And no. and so, you know, we need to just, I think, think a little bit deeper about the so-called opportunities that we're offering to folks. So you said something that even more in the last two, three years, were you alluding to the fact that the pandemic shined a spotlight on how screwed up the industry was or not? Mm. I mean, not necessarily. Um, not really that. No, I think it's just ever since that summer of sort of justice and yes. um, George Floyd passing. I think that's when things changed. That was during the pandemic. And, you know, yes. so much of those early responses were performative, but there's been some really, I think, substantial work um, that came out of that. Um, and you know, I mean, the wine industry is is an industry full of uh, pretty progressive people, anyway. So that this was an opportunity that a lot of people used to do some overdue work was fantastic. I mean, the other thing you have to understand is that um, when I came into the industry, part of the reason that all of these white men mentored me is because, to tell you the truth, the few people of color I approached were not interested in helping me. And maybe that's airing a little bit of dirty laundry, but what can happen to um, underrepresented groups who sometimes are able to make inroads into these spaces is that you start to believe your own tokenism and believe right. your own specialness. And that can be, I think that was something that sometimes trapped people. Oh, I, I made it to the table and I made it to this, you know, I made it to right. this function Good and point. I made it to this group and you, and you start to protect it. And, and also your identity gets really tied up in being sort of the only special person of this type at the table. So, you know, the, it, these are, this is human nature. I don't, you know, I, I don't have any bitterness for anybody, but it's something that I've had to remember as I've evolved to not do that. <laughs> Right. Of course. I mean, because it's yeah. the right thing to do. Um, just quickly, I mean, yeah. when we talk about diversity, equity, do we feel women have made strides too? I mean, do we lump all that in gender and or you know, here's, is that here's still what lagging? I, here's what I think about um, opportunities in terms of equity for women and for underrepresented, you know, whether you want to call it minority groups or cultural right. groups or what have you. It's... Um, you know, a lot, a lot of more, a lot more voices um, being shown, and a lot more validity being brought to these voices. But I still feel like there's a lot of lagging in equity, like uh, fiscal ex equity, and like actual ownership, proprietorship, that sort of thing. Um, I think you're I right. I think that needs to be the next step. I think statistically it probably could be proven. So you're yeah. probably right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely had conversations um, whether that sort of thing affected me. I don't really think so because again, I think if you look at my resume, you, you see how much I like to move around and I like to sort of shape shift. Um, right. But I do think that there's a lot of people that were, that have been passed over. So let me ask you this as a mentee and a mentor. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this is the old standard question. Um, what advice would you give? Let's start with a young woman or a young person, you know, that wanted to get into the business. After doing this so long and kind of knowing everything, do you tell them to run for the hills or <laughs> do, do you, what, you know, how, how do you handle something? Like I mean, that? I mean, quite honestly, I ask them, you know, what, you know, there are many different ways to be involved in this. And, connoisseurship is actually a really valid way to love and support the wine industry. So do you really want to work in this industry or do you just want to improve your knowledge and be a better, um, right. you know, more appreciative consumer? There's right. space for all of that and don't conflate the two, you know? I mean, you know, yes, I'm working on this beautiful jewel box of a restaurant called Mena and Tribeca with Chef Victoria Blamey and I'm honored to do that, but I was also moving, you know, 40 boxes of wine Three, you know, three, you know, three flights down into right. a weird yeah. sub cellar through, like, uh, you know, like it's just like there is. Do you really want to do this work? You know, because it's, it's not all really the glam. Have- Right. You have to qualify, you know, what people are thinking or what they want to do. Um, Let's just stay on this subject for one Mm -hmm. last thing, which is something I know that, you know, is important to you and you even practice. Um, The industry's always been terrible at work-life balance. I mean, Mm -hmm. it just was work, 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 you know, don't give a crap about the worker, you know, very little. Um, I think you said you believe in the integration of wine and food into a balanced, healthy, and joyful life, a spirited lifestyle, which all people of every stripe are welcome to savor. I mean, can that be accomplished in the workplace? You know, I don't know, but I know if we don't ask for it, we won't get it. And I just, I have just always asked for what I needed um, to the point where sometimes I got let go because of that or people (laughs) said no. Um, But also more times than not, people said yes. And um, I just, you know, I, I think, you know, everybody's talking about what's going on in society, not everybody, just, I, you know, all the newspapers I read are talking about the great resignation and, you know, whether it's millennials or, or Gen Z's or I'm a Gen X, you know, people leaving their jobs and reconsidering what they're doing and what they've been spending time in. I was reading this big article in the New York Times about this yesterday. And I thought, holy shit, like, I don't feel like that at all. Like, I am so lucky because I made this choice years ago to not become a lawyer and to chase something or to follow a path that made me feel alive. It also never made me feel like I was working. And yes, right. maybe I could have I could have made more money and I could have had more security in, in certain ways. But um, every day I've, I've, I pretty much wake up feeling excited about what's coming next. So I don't feel like, you know, there's nothing that I feel like I don't have. Um, well, no, I probably could use more money, but, um, everyone can, but wait, don't, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. you set that path and you know, you've only expressed, enjoyed doing it. But recently, I guess maybe with age or experience and all that, I mean, didn't you take pause? I mean, didn't you pull yourself away from it? I mean, tell me when that was and why, and you know, obviously you're getting back into it, but I think at your terms. What happened? Yeah, nothing really. I think I just I don't had... mean like something happened, but you know why right, did right, you Right, 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 right. Because I I am an eternal seeker and 
sometimes I just get to the ends of these cycles where I feel like I've learned what I wanted to learn. It doesn't mean I'm a master of wine. It doesn't mean I know everything about the Loire Valley. It just means that the lessons for me have been exhausted and I need to go somewhere where I can learn some new lessons. So um, after working, you know, after a great cycle of working for Louis Dresner for a few years and then working for Andrew Tarlow for a few years, I just felt like I was at the end of some sort of chapter and I needed to just take a sabbatical. So I did. And it was fantastic. And I took a few years Um, off. Which it's kind of ballsy and gutsy because it does involve you know, money, (laughs) it Mm -hmm. involves, you know, relevancy and the routine and all of that, you know, so kudos in the long run. I'm sure it was important. Go backwards with me for a second, because I just want to finish the first chapter. One of the last important people you work with was Andrew Tarlow, who was sort of an innovator in Brooklyn. Just, you know, tell everyone who he was and what you wound up doing. And, you know, well, he's still alive. (laughs) No, I know. I know. know. And he's a relatively young guy. Um, Andrew, who I kind of see as a brother in arms, um, he was also a mentee of Joe Dresner. So in these, this weird sort of way, we were sort of like these co-mentees. And when I was working for Louis Dresner, Andrew and I worked together really closely. He obviously was running all these restaurants and buying a lot of wine from us. And so we traveled together and, you know, evolved together. So, um, I have this weird itch that I always have to scratch, which is called working in a restaurant. And anytime, (laughs) anytime I've done anything else for a while, but I haven't worked in a restaurant, if somebody brings me some really great restaurant opportunity, I always end up jumping at it. And uh, after working for uh, Joe for about four years, and then Joe had also passed away. um, It's not why I left, but it was just sort of, again, part of a cycle. Um, Andrew had presented me with this opportunity to run all his restaurants and to, you know, help open the White Hotel and and create like this natural wine empire of wineless. And it was so uh, appealing and I was excited to do it. So, um, and Andrew is a tastemaker, but I think even more than that, he's a real community creator. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what he did for Williamsburg. When you think about the fact that yeah. you know, he opened the diner, like, almost 25 years ago now or something like that. Like he helped create a community and a consciousness in Williamsburg that was very different than what existed. You know, there was, there were people there, they were, they were living vital lives. They were living dynamic lives, but obviously uh, whether you want to call it gentrification or, or whatever else you want to call it, like Andrew created a new community of people there. Um, I, I agree with that. I mean, yeah. you know, I think people who know, if you know, you know, what he's yep. done, but a lot of people walk through things that he was responsible for. Absolutely. Right. So I ain't letting you get out of here without talking about natural wine. Sure. Um, which is very exciting to me to have you. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you were at the beginning of the natural wine movement. You know, we're talking two decades ago already. Yeah. Um, and I still see that natural wine may not be part of the mainstream, but it, it's very popular and it's very sought after. You know, but you know what's so great? It might not be exactly part of the mainstream, but it is affecting the mainstream. And that's what's really powerful. Right? I agree with that. Yeah. And you and I talked offline. As a matter of fact, today, Eric Asimov did a story about natural wine. Yeah. The, the 
the gist of it was he selected 12 bottles out of many that he's suggesting. But to get to those 12 bottles, you know, he discusses natural wine. Um, so in a way, you know, the New York Times is mainstream media and Eric Asimov's talking about it. All right. So let's let's go back a little. I mean, what what attracted you to natural wine? Was it the people that you were around that they were into it and through osmosis, it, you know, how you know, did that? It, it was twofold. It was, I was starting to get my feet wet in the wine industry. Um, I liked these people fine. It was fun. Um, but I wasn't really convinced. And to tell you the truth, maybe the way I can loop in Terry Thies a little bit, because he really was um, quite crucial to me at an important moment, um, gave me one of my first opportunities to go on a wine trip with him to Austria. And um, what I will say is that Terry Thies and Joe Jessner were in my life at almost exactly the same time. And I actually ended up working for Terry Thies for a little while, but it was almost like there were two paths in front of me and one that was a bit more classical with Terry and one that was more renegade with Joe. Both of them um, amazingly talented men, both of them with amazing palettes and also kind of world builders, each of them, you know, I mean, where was, we wouldn't be talking about growers champagne. We wouldn't be talking about Riesling. If not for Terry, right. If not for Terry. Right. Right. So Gruner Veltliner. Terry Thies, like, you know, like for, for real, but, um, but I, I think that there is still a culture that, that was linked to Joe and his posse that I was just so attracted to. And it was so, um, it, it was so unexpected, you know, like, you know, you knew what you thought wine was about, right? The big chateaus right. in Bordeaux and, you know, fancy people doing fancy things. And when I first came into the restaurant industry in New York City in the late 90s, all the sommeliers were white men, usually European and, you know, pretty snooty, pretty snooty dudes, right? Even if they were from, yeah. from Jersey, even if they were from Jersey or Maryland, they found a way to be snooty, right? <laughs> so... I'm not talking about anybody in specific, I swear. So it was like, (laughs) um, um, so it was like, you know, to meet this group of people that were just like, you know, it was like a Pied Piper, like, just come with us and we'll figure it out, you know, like, and it's not that they were, they were um, undisciplined people. They were very disciplined but they knew that there was so much that they didn't know. There was such a humility there. And I thought that this was a school that I could get with. It was like it, I could join one school or I could join the other school. And this was my school. All right. So right. Th- that that's the people. Mm-hmm. All right. So the people has to translate into wine. What wines, what regions? Was it more limited in those days to like the Loire and Jura or whatever? Was it all over the place? Like what were the wines? You you talked about the people. What wines captivated you? Okay. Well, there's probably one other thing I should really mention is that, and I mentioned this in passing earlier, that I grew up in the Hudson Valley where there were a fair amount of farms and my grandfather was also a farmer in Jamaica. So I've always felt very rooted to the land is also why I had that epiphany at Nora Puyon's restaurant when I saw the back of the menu. And um, what I realized was that in the natural world, they were always talking about farming, soil, sustainability, you know, it, it, it was so rooted. 
in the natural world. In the non-natural- no Yes, right? The non, you know, in the other part of the wine industry, it was like everything else. It was points and it was scores and it was right. auctions and it was events and it was, you Agreed. know, it, you know, grand awards. Right. And it just didn't resonate with me. And so the one of my big aha moments came with a guy that is actually at a really weird crossroads when it comes to natural wine production. Guy named Michel Chapoutier. I was at a luncheon with him, and he Chapoutier, the winemaker. Yes. Okay. And he has sort of a fraught relationship with the natural wine movement, even though he essentially is part of it. Um, And so he he. What I always realized about him is I was sitting next to him at this luncheon. And um, I was so close to him that I could see his hands, or maybe we touched hands. I don't know. These were the days where we all touched hands a lot. And um, and I and I saw, and I he had these calluses all on the inside of his palms. Farmer. And I just thought, yeah, this is what I want. I don't want the fancy guys with the you know patches on their you know houndstooth blazers. I want the smoking jackets. The, I want yeah. I want the dude with the calluses on his hand. So yeah. you know, obviously, it's a way of relating to the world. But the wines that really moved me. Well, what I can tell you is that before Joe Jesner, there was a guy named Mark Whitmore, and he had a distributorship in New, based in New York called Vineyard Expressions. He probably, arguably, brought in. Somewhere I have to look at the dates, but somewhere between him and Jenny and Francois really sort of brought in the first, no, I think it was Mark Whitmore because it was late 90s, brought in the first natural wines um, to probably the United States, brought in producer um, uh, Claude Courtois, brought it, who's from the Loire, brought in Darden Rebo from the Rhone, um, some really wacky wines that I was responsible for trying to place in like fancy restaurants in New York City. And it was crazy. It was bonkers, but it was also really fun. Um, those are the first wines I remember, but I also remember that for every bottle of Darden Rebo that I placed at that point, I would have to credit a bottle because they were so fucking wacky that right. they, you know, it was always like, oh God, I'm so sorry that that wine refermented you on something like that. I mean, I say this without any disrespect because I think those are grand wines and they evolved as well. But I think that it's, it always comes down to the Loire Valley. I mean, that's just where... Yeah. I think the movement really built the most momentum and that those personalities, the, you know, Renee and Agnes, Ma, uh, Agnes Moss and the Terry right. Puzalas, those are the personalities that we were able to connect to most deeply when we met them. You know, maybe they were our age or just a few years older. Maybe they spoke a, a, a similar sort of language, but obviously in different languages we just we knew these like we knew these guys we understood these guys and we immediately became part of this sort of global community right so in recognizing that mm-hmm. through the years cuz like i said we're talking a couple of decades ago has your palate you know changed I mean, Italy is a great place for natural wines, other regions of France, you know, Austria, all those places. I mean, has your palate changed? Is it more because there's more producers and your eyes opened up or? I don't know. I'm always asking myself this question to tell you the truth. Have I changed? Has my palate changed? Has the world changed? What I can tell you- I guess all of the above, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know. Everything is a moving target. So it's really hard to understand. What I can tell you is that um, 
like there are certain considerations I had that I didn't used to have before. I went through a period of time where I really just was obsessed with acid and I probably liked extremely high acid <laughs> wines. And um, Do you remember some of them? I mean, I'm just curious. It was just I was drinking like tons of bubbles and champagne okay. and I, you know, I've always right. loved well, nothing um, wrong with that, Austrian though. whites and, you right. know, but I was just everything, you know, but like light reds, crunchy reds, all that stuff. But everything just had to be really fresh and have acid and I, 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 I. And, um, and then me and a friend of mine named um, Vinicius Rodriguez, who's uh, works for Bowler Wine, we just like a few years ago, we're just like, the climate's changing, man. So like, we got to figure out how to get behind some of these other wines because, you know, you can't be so obsessed with one profile of wine that everything that you believe in around wine becomes like irrelevant, right? What Because it's from a climate that doesn't necessarily, you know, present wines with so much acid, you're just going to like, you know, and I mean, obviously, like, if you look at like Grand Cru and Premier Cru Chablis, I mean, I drank some Ravino the other day, and I was like, what the fuck? Like, this, what? like, it's just very, very rich, like very rich. Well, you know, yeah. and I know these are yeah. wines that are, you know, but I guess but what I'm saying is- that's a style too, you know. It's a, it's a style, but it's also like south-facing amphitheaters are- right not what they used to be like they're it's like it's all too much right there's so well, much right you bring up a good point i mean you know if you're alluding to climate and all of that yeah, yeah you know and the varietals and where you plant and pick all of that you know that's a whole nother show right um, so i mean i think what i'm saying is that i'm constantly retraining my palate to be the person that i want to be i mean i i think that's that's interesting right it's like i want to inhabit a certain space in this industry. And it means that sometimes I force my palate to evolve in ways that maybe I wouldn't have because it lines up with my value system. Um, yeah, that that's fair. And, you know, you're inquisitive, so you would probably do that anyway. Before we take a break, because we have to take a break, mm -hmm. I want you to talk about one thing that you were rightfully tagged with, and that was that you were an important player in natural wine festivals very early on. You know, maybe people have attended Raw Wine or Wild World, and it just seems like, you know, commonplace, but... You know, when we're talking about going back to, you know, when you were starting out, putting a natural wine festival together wasn't necessarily, you know, the easiest thing. And I think you did glue glue and you used the wide space. Just tell mm -hmm. me quickly about, you know, how you got yourself into that. I mean, I think honestly, um, attending the wine salons in France uh, right. early in they my career there, yeah. yeah, was so formative that we just wanted to bring that experience to New York and um, Guillaume Girard, who's uh, the owner of Slexio Massel was um, my partner in that. And quite honestly, I don't think I ever would have gotten it together or gotten off the couch if he hadn't insisted upon it. Um, we were talking about it probably for two years before we did it. Um, so it just ends up that we came to New York six months before raw. So, you know, I mean, they were, they were also, you what know, year but we weren't was that, sure. Lee? It was 2016, and we just were at this point where everybody was talking about it, but nobody was doing anything. And so right. we just decided we got to like shit or get off the, you know. So right. we just so we just went for it, and it was fantastic. And I think part of what we also wanted to do was to present um, 
to present a version of natural wine that really resonated with Guillaume and me, which was that we love natural wines. We're both part of sort of the evolution of, of the appreciation of natural wines in this country, but we just tend to like wines that have a bit more finesse and are a little bit more finished and maybe have even like a more classical presentation than some people do, right? I don't think right. that the funkier and the less filtered and the more natty a wine is, the better it is. I don't inherently believe that. Right. That's um, the profile people think about, but it, it goes right. much so deeper. So I'm always trying to sort of create balance around that. Great. Um, yeah. And well attended, well received. Yeah, um, yeah, and I mean anybody else, recognition anybody else and would sales. have done it over and over again and created a whole right. series and had a whole empire. But I just un- unfortunately well, Isabel don't have is those doing kinds of with, aspirations. Isabel's doing it with raw wine, and Byron yeah. Bates is now doing it with Wild World. Exactly. And then the European stuff still exists, so you know it lives yeah. on, which is a good thing. All right, yeah, Lee, yeah. we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Lee Campbell. When we come back, we're going to talk to Lee about her current restaurant project. We're going to talk to her about something very interesting, and it's two words you don't hear a lot together, and that's Virginia wines. Um, You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Lee Campbell. Um, Lee, I want to talk to you about some current stuff. Okay. We talked a little about it. You shouted out, but I want to get into it. Um, You helped star chef uh, Victoria Blamey design the wine list for her new restaurant, Mena, which really just opened. Um, And you and I were supposed to do this show a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And you pushed me off because you had to get Victoria's restaurant up and running. I understand that now. Um, So tell me about how you and Victoria got together. Tell me a little about the restaurant because that'll set up the wine list. Let's talk about that. Okay. Um, So Mena is a small, um, beautiful little restaurant that we're lucky enough to have helmed by Chef Victoria. And um, I think it's a real ode to 
her whole life, meaning that she's born in Santiago, Chile, and the restaurant is named after, I believe, her great aunt, who was an inspiration in her learning to cook. But she's worked in some of the most prestigious kitchens in New York and around the world. And so what she's done is bring all of this sort of technical ability um, and sort of elevated many of the flavors and dishes of her youth. So it's high meets low, it's the past meets the future. There's lots of beautiful spices. She works with all of these different types of chilies that she ferments herself that takes the a lot of the the intensity of the chili out, but, but then develops more flavors. Um, and it's honestly a style of cooking and cuisine that I've never encountered before. I have to tell you that after all of these years in the industry, to be working with a woman who really surprises me constantly. And when she describes her food to me and then I taste the dish, I'm like, this is like three times better than I thought it was going to be. That's very exciting for, you know, a sommelier who's- Is it harder? But, you know, you, you describe so, a wide variety of flavors. Yeah. Does it make it harder to bring in wines that, you know, complement the food or? No, no. I think that because Victoria is such a lover of wine and she's a lover of natural wines, her right. food has evolved to complement the types of wines that I specialize in. So, descri so, so mm -hmm. describe the specialty. Obviously, I'm guessing it's not a huge list. So you had to curate, you know, yeah. tell me the mission and the goal, you know, what the list is. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that I was looking for wines with a certain transparency so that they allow the flavors, the complexity of the flavors that she's created to really shine. Um, so, you know, in some ways, wines that are a little deferential and um, lots of sort of very mineral whites um, with maybe a slight oxidative edge to them, not oxidative wines, but just wines that are right. made in maybe a slightly oxidative environment. And then the reds tend to be very fresh, very light, very crunchy. Um, and again, um, to go with the spice. And a lot of our reds are like, are they red or are they rosé kind of reds sort of wow. thing? So dark kind of Cherisuolo-esque rosés um, or red wine. So it's been really fun. Now, the other thing that's been fun about this project is because of her um, South American heritage to really try to source, not just from Chile, not just from Argentina, but getting, I'm getting really excited about Mexico and what's going on there. Uh -huh. um, obviously, we've ha had a couple of, you know, voices coming from Mexico for the last few years, but now right. there's more and more coming in, um, especially the work of Zevrovine and Jose Pastor's importers are doing a fantastic job. Later this afternoon, I'm tasting wines from Peru, from the Pisco Valley of Peru. Wow. So, um, Have you, know, you had wines in, from there before? No, never, never. So, so I mean, I'm a... not even a person that like dabbled that deeply in Will South America. Will you just send me I a my text or Will you send me a text or an email, like in the next few days, just your take on those wines? Yeah. Just two, three lines. You know, Absolutely. I'm very intrigued by that. So yep. it's a very cool list that does complement, you know, what she's doing. So you're not just like favoring, you know, any one region, although there may be more entries, but you're trying to get all over the place, right? I mean, I was definitely favoring some regions before they were like, Lee, remember when we talked about having a few more South American wines? Right, right, right. I don't see any. Like, yeah, uh, get off your okay. ass. A bit more than three. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. 
Um, but then once I opened it up to Mexico, that's when I got really excited to tell you the yeah. truth. Yeah, and there are some cool wines coming out of there, and I think you're going to hear more about it. And you're going to hear, hear more and more. The way you hear about it is people like you at restaurants like Mena, you know, where you get to taste them. You know, yeah. I remember now it's kind of commonplace, but I remember, I, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, somebody gave me a glass of wine from the Canary Islands. I'm like, oh, yeah. Boy. And, you know, that's like Envenati and all those guys are making tons of wine, great wine. I know. So it's, or like, it, I'm it, totally obsessed with the Azores, you know? Yeah. It'll all. <laughs> Who it'll knew all... we were going to have a, like get wine from the Azores? But like how oh, this is but amazing. But that's why that's why you're an important person in the wine yeah. business, and how what you do touches different people. Right. Which leads me to my last topic with you. And, <laughs> Virginia, you know, I, I was gonna. I was going to kind of slide into this, but I'm not going to do it with as much finesse. I mean, just because you went to college in Virginia, I just can't figure out how <laughs> the hell that you, and if anybody's listened to this show, realizes, you know, who you are, what the hell you're doing, like in Virginia, you know, sort of promoting Virginia wines. I mean, I think it's fair to say an ambassador. So you're working, you know, you're pushing Virginia wines, and is it fair to say you're working with a particular uh, vineyard, Early Mountain Vineyard? Yeah, yeah, I work. Okay. I work specifically for Early Mountain, but okay. but but because it's such a community down there, the work I do for Early Mountain, we are also, you know, I had done an event at um, Blenheim Vineyards last fall, which is Dave Matthews' estate. Right. I, you know, we're we're actually organizing a Virginia wide tasting this May in New York City. It's going to be on May 3rd for the trade and we'll have some other events, but we're going to bring up about eight producers from Virginia. Um, so we work, you know, we work as a community a lot. In right. Virginia. Which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. And early um, mountain, you know, I realized, and I just want to know how you got to them is, you know, a family had started it and the cases, Steve AOL case yeah. and his wife, who's really the point person. It's really I the other way Jean, around. I was going to say Jean case and her wife and, and, no, and her, and I, her I was, husband, I, Steve. Yeah. Well, I was going to get to that. Jean is really, <laughs> you know, the person. I mean, yes, I was going to make that acknowledgement. Just before we get into the vineyard, how how'd that come about? Um, well, first of all, you have to understand that you would understand a little bit more about my connection to like the state of Virginia. If you knew a little bit more about the university, as we call it, we just call it the university. And yeah, yeah, so yeah. Stop showing off. <laughs> and so, you know, people who go to UVA, we're like, we're like part of a cult, like it's a cult, right? Well, it's and, like the Ivy League of the South or the mid Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And it's founded by Thomas Jefferson and, you know, yeah. so, you know, so it's, it's it's a real enclave you if you love it you love it and you love it until the day you die and i have always had this connection to virginia now i first got down there because my stepmother was from richmond but once i was down there i loved the landscape i loved the region so in the back of my head i was always trying to sort of like get back to virginia somehow oh maybe i should buy a house in charlottesville wouldn't that be nice you know those <laughs> kinds of things but um i should have i wish i did but um Essentially, uh, I was introduced to Early Mountain through a colleague, a longtime colleague named um, Nicholas Mestre, who owns Williams Corner Wine. So it's a distributorship based in D.C. and Virginia. They were the long-time um, distributors of Louis Dresner, and Nicholas and I had traveled wow. together a lot. Yep, Connection. I was on my sabbatical and just had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do next. Wasn't even sure if I wanted to stay in wine. 
And he invited me to an event at the estate. I happened to be passing through DC. So I decided to take a jaunt down to Madison, Virginia, because um, Early Mountain is, is, is in the Blue Ridge. It's in a town right. called Madison, which is just north of Charlottesville. And I just really thought I was going down for like a party. Like I wasn't that interested in getting to know these wines. And the last time I had had wine from Virginia, I just hadn't been particularly enthused. So... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, you know, Virginia was making all that Viognier for many years yeah. and it was just like, ugh. so, you know, I was, had no expectations, was going down more because it was like a community, you know, event. And first of all, I started these to taste these serious, wines. right? Yeah. yeah I, I started to taste these wines. They were so well-crafted. They had such expression and, I couldn't believe that this was going on. Now, you know, then I find the people in the project, right? And um, I should say that, you know, Ben Jordan is the head winemaker and he's phenomenal. He is um, one of the biggest talents in the wine industry in America. He is like an autodidactic self-taught. So, you know, he was mentored, but he didn't go to enology school. He didn't go to winemaking school. Right. And, um, I think what's more is that he, Ben and I are very inspired by a lot of the same wines, namely one called Clos Roche Blanche, which no longer exists, but was a wine from the Loire Valley. And I, I know I was just yes. at a tasting with Patrick Cappiello. He had oh, some nice. old bottles and we went nice. through about eight, 10 bottles. That's not funny. around anymore, but yes. great reference. Yeah. So he and I had sort of a similar platonic ideal of wine and natural wine. And so Ben's, the way that Ben makes wine, I just respond to fully. So there was that. Wait, can and I then, ask you a mm -hmm. question to that? Yeah. Because I, I interrupted you. I didn't mean to, but That's okay. it's sort of like finish the sentence. So, and this will help you continue to describe Early Mountain. Does Early Mountain check all the boxes on farming practices, winemaking practices, sustainability for you as somebody, you know, that kind of came through the natural wine, you know, ranks and recognizes that these were the guys doing it? I mean, right. are they, is Ben that guy or are they getting there? Are they doing it? Or are they not doing it? We're definitely in progress and process. Okay. Um, I want to give a shout out to Maya Hood White, who is our um, head viticulturist and also an associate winemaker there. She is the one that brings all of the credentials. She undergrad at Virginia Tech, grad at UC Davis, and um she's doing really great work in the vines there. Um, you know, we also have some great industry leaders, a woman named Lucy Morton, who is uh, sort of an enologist that consults at a lot of different estates. Right. But I guess what I would say is that I had to let go of some of the dogma, you know, and I've learned that there are a few different ways to skin a cat and that if you, again, believe in a movement and believe in, um, a certain style 
of living. Cause I, I, you know, for me, this Virginia thing is not just about wine. I I see it as almost like a lifestyle push for Americans. I think everybody should have good wine being made in their state and they should be able to just mosey down there on the weekend and pick up their wine for the summer or pick up their wine for the season. You know, I think that when you see how wine is made, when you live a life around vines and around winemaking, because the thing you got to remember about Virginia is that those estates for the most part own their own vines. The model, the American model and the West Coast model where the farming and the winemaking is usually split. No, it's all together in Virginia because people up until very recently, people have always been able to buy vines there. So buy land there, I should say. So, you know, that experience of whatever connects us to the land, I think is good. I think wine can connect you to the land. And I think that when you go to an estate and they're, and you're really drinking wine that is being grown from grapes that are being grown right there, I think that makes a difference. And I, I want to be part of that story. I also wanted to be part of a Southern sort of story because I felt like there was something that we're not talking about regarding the black experience with agriculture in the South and what our legacy could be and should be in those spaces. You know, so many Blacks over the last 100 and 200 years lost family land, lost family farms. Right. And we don't do a great job of this in Virginia, but I'm trying to be part of a conversation where we talk about what our responsibility and what is what is our legacy there, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, it's good recognition of everything. I also Yeah, I just feel like, you know, I know a lot of African-Americans that are from North Carolina and from Virginia and sure. from Maryland. And I think that if we're looking for ways to bring wine to lots of different groups, to know that your grandmother's house is down the road. Start from in your state, vines, start you know, in that like, region. I just think it's all connected somehow. I so, think and, I, a- and, and I think that's part of the issue with Americans with wine anyway, is that we just, we always make everything all snooty when it's agricultural and it's, your back, it's in your backyard and it shouldn't be, you know, I mean, you know, how many stories do we know about grandmothers that were making fruit wine or making scoopernong wine or making, you know, like these are traditions that we've actually had in this country in a lot of ways and we just yeah. sort of need to reclaim them. Yeah. Good point. Um, I will ask you about more information from the winery. Um, the Grape Nation, we've covered Virginia wines. We did a big show when we were at the Charleston Wine Festival, and we recently had Rutger Devink on. Who's That's another, great. Uh, are you going to be in Charleston this year? Uh, yes, we are, and so are you. Yes, so I'll see you there. And we will see you there, and maybe you'll jump on one of our shows or something, but I'll talk to you about that offline. All right, yeah. Lee, nobody, nobody gets out of the Grape Nation without answering our wine list. We ask everyone five questions. We've asked the same five questions to over 200 people. Oh, and I'm really are, bad at these. You are going to participate in this. I should have listened to But we to don't another. have a ton of time. So <laughs> obviously it's spontaneous. Be quick. Don't dwell on your answers, all right? Okay. If you feel me moving you along, it's because you're dwelling, all right? Okay. All right. So here's the first question. What are you drinking now? 
And that is what's in your fridge. What are you tasting? A lot of it may point towards what you're drinking to help Mana. You know, what are you liking? Give me a few examples of what you're drinking now. You know, I'm fucking obsessed with this uh, <laughs> magnum of Giardino and for a white wine from Campania. Um, so Wait, G-I-A-R? Giardino? Yeah, is so that the, the is that the maker or is that what is that that's a producer his name is um, well yeah the producer's name is Giardino okay and they're in Campania and they make their natural wine makers and I obsess with natural wines that can make it to day two make it to day three make it to day four because this is what you have to do in a restaurant so I've this been is drinking, cork in the bottle in the fridge type thing yeah I've been drinking okay. this magnum this what's the un- varietal uh, I think it's either, it's probably Greco, probably okay. Greco. And so I've been drinking this wine for basically three, three weeks to see and how it holy evolves. Shit. And it's holding up? <laughs> um, amazingly. Talk about oxidative. Right, right, right. But this is like unsulfured, so natural, unfiltered, all that stuff. And I've wow. been like, I'm, you know, but of course they're sold out and I can't buy it anymore. So I took oh, too boy. long. <laughs> Well, you screwed up. All right, that's a good answer. I'll take that as yeah. a singular answer. All right, Thanks. second question, maybe the goofiest, but what is Lee Campbell's favorite wine and food pairing? Not what you think a good wine food wine and food pairing is, but what does it for you? I mean, obviously you don't eat it all the time, but when you do, it makes sense. Um, I mean, I think I tend to like, again, these lightly oxidative wines Things that you could find in places like Calaris, Portugal, or a Sauvignon-based wine from the Jura. Things that are nutty and mineral and have a touch of oxidation. And then I just kind of drink them with everything. You know, I like a wine that you don't have to think about too hard and whites that go with everything. In fact, I but always that's remember... A very spe- that's a specific mm-hmm. description. There has to be yeah. a food that's better than another one with that type of wine. Can you think of... Or that's just your food wine. Yeah. I, I mean, that I hate to tell everybody food. that, you know, I get really geeked out when I'm pairing in the restaurant, but I'm not geeked out when I pair at home at all. Like it's just okay. very casual. So okay. sorry. All right. That's good. No, no, no. I like yeah. that. You know, nobody's ever <laughs> answered that way. All right. I like a, I like a, a, a rich white wine that goes with everything. That is, you specified even better there. Yeah. All right. Third question. And I know you're busy. I know, you know, you're in the industry, but here's the question, your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. And let me just set that up for you by not mentioning anyone. You're not leaving them out by mentioning someone doesn't mean it's your favorite. Just what do you recognize as a place that does it well? You know, that has a good selection. The people are knowledgeable. The vibe is good. I would say Maina, if you walked in, would check that box because of you, the wine list, interesting, the food and all of that. It's very thoughtful. But give me, you know, a favorite or two of you. Who's doing it well? I mean, I think Jorge at Frenchette is doing it extraordinarily well. Um, so, you know, I'm a Jorge fanboy, so I'm yeah. with you there. But I Anything mean, I'm like always, that? yeah, I'm always going to holler at Romans in Fort Greene. Now I know that's, you know, not necessarily subjective because I used to work for that company and I built that wine list uh, several years ago, but I mean, it's not my wine list anymore, but obviously I worked on that I, you wine know list. You know what, Lee, I'm not sure mm-hmm. in all the, um, wine lists we did that anybody's ever said Romans. So that's a good one. <laughs> I love Romans. I think yeah, that is Yeah, I'm glad just you brought that up. And the reason I do this is to drop, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. 
And always, um, always interesting wine picks, you know, just, you know, they're not trying to like reinvent the wheel. It's just great, interesting wines for the food that they make. So Franchetta moments, those are great. Mm-hmm. All right. Fourth question. So the question is, and I know you love to answer favorites. The question <laughs> is favorite all time wine. Now, listen to me. When I structured this question many years ago, I was curious about what was Lee Campbell? What was the rarest, most expensive wine she ever drank? I could give a crap about that now. The question really morphed into what is that wine that was significant to you, that was important to you, that showed you the world, that was your gateway? You know, is there a wine or two that you can recall from your past? Yes, there are. Shoot. There are two. Um, One, I think, is the one that really peeled back the wine world, the natural wine world for me. And it's um, a producer named Marc Angeli. Um, he's based in the Anjou. He he doesn't get quite the attention that he should in sort of a commercial way, but the right. OGs and people, you know, he's, he's a winemaker's winemaker, if you will. And um, I respect the work he does so tremendously. I respect his world sensibility, but the wine that I think showed me that natural wine could be grown up was um, a 2002 cuvee that he makes based on Chenin Blanc called uh, La Lune. Um, Spell. Um, La Lune, like the, the moon. L-U-N-E? Yeah, La exactly. Okay. La Lune 2002. Anything? You know, I, I don't know who has a bottle of that anymore. Maybe you David said- Lillies. Sitting yeah, on one. <laughs> this particular answer doesn't have to necessarily be available. You yeah. said there was maybe a second one. What else? Yeah, to tell you the truth, um, a couple, a few years later, um, also a 2002 uh, vintage, uh, Henri Jaillet in Rouen Romanet, um, his Crow Power and Two Premier Cru 2002 that I probably tasted at Nick and Tony's when I was working there as a sommelier. So Nick and Tony's was a um, really shishi restaurant in, yes. in East Hampton the for Hamptons, many years. Yeah. And um, as transformative to me as the natural wines that I loved with was this ethereal burgundy um, that I was, that I was working with there. And, you know, that list was tremendous for me because it was consulted on by Robert Bohr and we bought wines on consignment from his restaurant crew. So I got to work at the beach and sell wines from crew and it was great. And that's uh, a, that's a, it's a very fancy choice, Lee. Yeah, no, but I I think, you know, I think that, what I try to explain to people is this is really my palate. Like this is, it's all of these things together. Right. Yeah. No, no, yeah. that's fair. I mean, it's yeah. one of the great wines of all time. So yeah. I mean, you're certainly in the right lane. All right. Last question. And I think you could do a wonderful job answering this. And I'm curious of your answers. So the question is recommend to me the best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks retail. I want a red and a white. The setup has always been that my kids are in their mid late twenties. They can't show up at dinners or give gifts of crappy supermarket wine, but it's hard for them to part with, you know, 40, 46 bucks or whatever. So how do you, ooh, and wow, um, in that price range, you can give me category. Muscadet is a great value. You can give me makers, but I'm looking for red. I'm looking for white. Shoot. Okay. Well, I can give you, and also this is a shameless plug, so I'm sorry, but, <laughs> um, 
you know, the hybrid wines that we make at Early Mountain, which both retail for about $20. Okay. The white is made from um, the hybrid grape that's called Vidal. The red is made primarily from the hybrid grape that's called Chambrosin. They operate as like a little mini pair with similar labels. They both taste fantastic chilled. And I love serving these wines to people because they just look like cute, delicious wines. You drink them, they taste fresh and they taste natural because there are sort of low intervention wines. And then you tell people later on they're from Virginia and they're like, what? Um, uh, I like that. Now, wait, when yeah. you say Vidal for the white, is it all Vidal or it's predominantly it's Vidal. Vidal. It's Vidal? It is. Mm-hmm. And the Chambersin is all? It's about 80 per- uh, 90% okay. Chambersin and then um, 10% Vidal kind of co-fermented in. Okay. But it's, it, it represents as a, as, a, as a red wine. All right. So that's not a shameless plug. I mean, you've devoted a chunk of your recent life to working with the <laughs> winery in Virginia wines. And the fact that they make it is, a wine. And I think and, hybrids is, you know, like well, that's hybrid is, a conversation again, that's we another need to show keep too. Yeah. But the fact that there's Virginia wines um, in that price range and they're interesting is a good answer. Um, all right. So you did a terrific job on that. As I mentioned earlier, we post all your answers on our social media, you know, in the next few days for a week. Um, all right, we got to wrap the show up. I got to do a quick wrap up and then I want to get a little info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the That's Sam at the Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. I plead with you every week to hit the subscribe button this way. When the show drops, there it is. It's waiting for you. So just do that. Um, Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. A little confusing, but you can get to both through the hashtag TheGrapeNation. We'll post Lee's wine list um, on our social media sites, as I mentioned. Now, Lee... Let's mm-hmm. talk about a few things. I think there's at least three things. Let's start with you. Um, you and I talked off air. You're not a big social media person, but you are on. If people wanted to connect, your yeah. Instagram handle is, tell everyone, Bewitchingly? Um, bewitchingly. So Bewitching, and then Lee spelled like my name, L-E-E, all one word. Right. So that's Lee, and I'll attest that she doesn't post a ton, but if you want to follow, she's there. All right, let's talk about Mena. Uh, Mena is in New York City in Soho. What street? Yeah, it's on Cortland Alley, um, a beautiful little side street. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of nestled between Tribeca and Chinatown, just south of Canal, between Lafayette and Broadway. And they have their own website, I know, because I was on We do. Just Google Mena, M-E-N-A, and you'll get all the info, wine lists about Victoria menus and all that stuff. And then lastly, Early Mountain Vineyards, a couple things. How do we get there? You know, can we get wine uh, on the website? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty car oriented. So I think you're going to have to have a car, but if you uh, can't come to us, we can come to you and come go to our website and check it out. There's lots of wine to buy and we can ship to me, okay. you know, we can ship all over the, you know, wherever we're is legal to ship, we can ship. Right. Um, and also, you know, look out for some Virginia wine events in May in New York city. If you're, if you're based here, um, would you, you put that on your 
Instagram page? I mean, I will put that on my Instagram okay, so page. Stay in touch for that. <laughs> and I think yes. I, from my recollection, I mean, early mountain is a spectacular place to visit. I mean, hospitality wise, right? It's beautiful. We have a, um, a really lovely restaurant. We even have a cottage if you um, want to stay yeah, I mean, overnight. Not every place has that. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, you got to book it well in advance, but, um, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful day trip. And, um, you know, it's a little bit off the beaten path. It's not right in the Monticello area of wineries, but it's well worth the trip. Yep. Well, a lot of wine places are a little off the beaten path. All right, Lee, yeah. we have to say goodbye. I want to thank our guest, Lee Campbell. I want to thank our engineer, Kevin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you have been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.